Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 240. So we got a new tool. I guess, a, can you call this a tool? Uh, do you even know what I'm going to be talking about? I Well, I do, because I have the show notes right in front of me. Yeah, so we, we got a new uh, automatic screen printer. It's a machine. When does it go from a tool to a machine? Hmm. Because a power drill... Like the mo modern power drills, like a brushless one, it's got a computer in it that's figuring out how to fire the motor depending on your switch input. I mean, is that any different than a complicated, like, computer learning with vision control, putting pace down and through apertures? You know, know, I was at first. I was gonna. I was gonna say like a tool is potentially mobile and a machine is static, but is a forklift a machine or a tool at that point? Yeah, or like you can put casters on anything. <laughs> <laughs> how much does how much does your new tool machine weigh? Oh, I don't know how much that thing weighs, but I just remember actually the when we got the new reflow oven that Heller it came on casters. Uh, yeah. I mean, we still rented a forklift for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we moved it, like we moved the uh, the box in on the forklift, and then. Um, we took it off. We picked it up off the pallet, right, and then took the pallet away. And then you wheeled it around on these ginormous, like almost like ten-inch diameter casters. And then you got in the right spot, and then you lifted it up, took the casters off, and then put it on its feet. Um, so yeah, the mobile doesn't work because technically you could just leave it on those casters, and then you have a, you know, what eighty eighty amps at. 400 whatever volt three phase tool <laughs> i'm sure ul is plenty fine with that yeah <laughs> so okay what what new tool machine did you get before we so, go to meta into this yeah so we've got an ese us 2000x automatic screen printer um it came in this week um don't know i don't know too much about it yet but looking at its specifications it looks like Maybe we could potential lower our minimal pace aperture size, which would be cool. Because um, previously, our minimal pace aperture size was dictated by our uh, jet printer machines. So we actually, for the longest time, we didn't um, use stencils at HQ. Um, we, would, we would basically use a really fancy laser printer that would use a little piezo element and vibrate uh, solder paste and... Arc, parabolic arcs as it shot around a board and deposited paste. Really cool technology. Dive bomb paste balls. Yeah, exactly. Really cool technology, but it, it's limited on on how small of a dot it can bombard the board with. Well, each dot is the minimum size, right? Yeah, that would be the minimal size. And um, so basically, if we had to go with uh, a dot size that was too small, you had to go stencils. Um, and so we had a like a semi a semi automatic machine to cover that basis, and then of course like our our partner factories uh, they all have you know fully automatic machines. But we finally got a fully automatic machine now, and um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to see if we can drop our minimal pace size, which would be pretty nice because that's like our biggest request for our DRC is to uh, or design rule check is to like get that number lower. Hmm. Well, buy a new tool machine, and yeah. there you go. Yeah. So, exactly. actually, you know what? I, I, I've, I, for, for people who haven't 
manufactured a board or seen a line, why don't you describe what a automatic screen printer is? Because it's actually kind of cool. So if, if you think it's cool, I mean, I think all of this is cool. So. It's, uh, yeah, that's true. It's, it's like making, um, so it's a screen printer and so what a screen, pr what a screen printer is just a generic screen printer is you have a, a, usually a piece of stainless or just some kind of material that's got openings in it. Um, and then you, whatever you're screening goes over that and then you squeegee the material across. And then as the squeegee goes across the screen, it presses the material into the screen and then into whatever you're screening. So you can make posters, you can make t-shirts. Um, it's funny enough to think about like screen printing t-shirts was like a thing my parents did when they were like kids and like, no one knows what the hell that is now. Well, well, when you're screen printing uh, T-shirts and things, you usually use like a mesh fabric that has, you know, been UV cured and has the openings in it. And depending on the mesh size, it's the, it's actually the same uh, process they use for applying silkscreen to your board. Whereas with a um, with a like a paste printer, you're you're actually talking about openings in a steel sheet. Uh, that that paste gets pushed through, and and you know it's funny if if you've never actually seen it or didn't even know that like if you if you're playing around in your EDA software and you see like the software complain because it needs to have its apertures def defined, those apertures are literally the openings in that steel plate that you're messing with. Yeah, messing with. Yeah, and it's um it's surprisingly a very low tech way to build very high tech things. Oh yeah. Um, it, screen printing has been around for ages and it, it's just a really good way of uniformly applying a viscous or non-viscous, I guess, uh, material. What would solder paste be? Cause it's not really, it's like non-newtomic actually almost. <laughs> it's paste. Yeah. It's paste. It's almost like peanut butter. Yeah. Peanut butter is a good, good way to explain it. Yeah. Well, it, it depends on, a, you know, actually super fine, chunky peanut butter. Uh, yeah, like if if the uh, if the chunks were I don't know a mill across or something. Yeah, what what's the uh, what's type four type five paste? So yeah, there's also different types of paste, giving what the size of the solder balls that are in the paste is, and also the tolerance between the ball sizes. So like a type five is like a super fine but also very concise paste, whereas a type three it's like, who really cares what the ball size is, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, you know. Uh, the, some of the best part about all of this is that uh, if you're going to get your product manufactured, everything we're talking about is not something you necessarily need to care about. Uh, no, most no. of the time, your your CM your CM handles it. Handles all of this. The only thing that you really need to worry about uh, is defining the paste apertures on uh such that when that stencil is cut it's actually has the holes where they need to be and um you know the, the sort of the there's some rule of thumbs when it comes to you know paste uh reduction and things so you typically make the opening smaller than the actual pad because you don't always need as much paste as would fully cover the pad because it will spread out so that's the one thing that you as the designer have some control over and the thing about that is to always talk to your CM because um, at MacFab, we we prefer one-to-one -one when we get it. Um, but some manufacturers are fine for reduction or whatever, but yeah, we like to have one-to-one. -one. 
But um, so like for me, when I'm designing, I'll leave most of those pads one to one. And then if it's a large thermal pad, like for underneath the part, I will go ahead and window that is usually what I will do. Because um, I know the MacFab CM process is everything's one to one. And they'll see that window and understand it's a window, and yeah. You know, I I, I wonder now. Uh, so MacFab's process has always been one to one, not always, but it was one to one because you guys had the uh, the Micronic or the My Two Hundred, right, or the yeah, Five Hundred, My Five Hundred, yeah. And and you guys could selectively adjust apertures if you needed to it's not even an aperture at that point because no. you could just shrink a pad if you needed to but now that you're getting into the stencil game you may not go one-to-one -one all the time yeah that, and then that's on our our manufacturing team to decide right right yeah actually the the way that's set up if the customer provides one-to-one -one for you and then you get to adjust the uh the apertures for everything that works too but but in general you know in so many ways like we talk about this all the time it's like if you're not sure just ask your cm and they probably have at least some guidelines to point you towards exactly yeah yeah um yeah so we're still sticking with the one one mainly because we've been using stencils for a long time now it's just now we have a newer machine that we can talk about <laughs> no a new tool uh, yeah that's right there's got to be some, there's probably some IPC number that says this is a tool and this is a machine. Oh, sure. Yeah. And if you violate that, they fine you. Yeah. Only if you pay for their PDF. <laughs> that is a fine almost. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, one thing that's, that's cool, we actually started getting into this about a year and a half ago at uh, WMD and um, uh, it's been turning out really well for us is step stencils. So stencils that have two different thicknesses, thicknesses. so you can yeah. apply thicker levels of paste at in certain areas and so we uh we have migrated to using a significant um, uh, amount of surface mount um headers now and we actually use some fine pitch stuff so you know 1.27 millimeter is some of our stuff uses um uh two by 20 connectors that are all surface mount. is that is that because that, you're stacking boards in your yeah, products? Yeah, we most of our products are a two-board stack-up, and we use surface mount female and male in between the two boards. And uh, we can use step stencils to selectively apply more paste to the legs of those versus, say, an 0402 component that's nearby that doesn't need nearly as much. Yeah, that thing just needs a little drop. Right, right. And, and we also use a, a handful of um, pretty hefty mechanical components that get abuse, uh, like mechanical tack switches and things like that and we put more paste on those so you know the it's funny the difference in price though really starts to stack up fast because just a joe schmo stencil is i don't know 15 to 25 dollars somewhere in that range and a step stencil is 400 dollars you yeah. know so like <laughs> you have to commit to it and uh but but in, in what we've done a lot of times is is do uh, prototypes without a step stencil because we can fix anything if we need to and then when we go to production drop the money and get the the good one yeah the that's actually the very uh the uh best not the very best benefit but one of the best benefits of the of the micronic um paste jetters the printers that just um is you can say i want to put like a ton of paste on this one pad and it can just bombard that one pad with a ton of paste <laughs> bombard it, just carpet bomb it <laughs> yeah but that, that's actually the best thing about it is 
is you can this actually would be a good idea is if you were iterating on on pace apertures basically you could dial that in with a pace jet machine and then go ahead and buy a stencil it would be faster it's like the difference between um injection molding and 3d printing you could iterate on a 3d print to a certain point get your final design and then take that and get get a mold for it i think that's a great um if you guys are not already doing that like it's it, it, ramping up to production for 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 clients like if they do like say a 10 piece run on on the line and uh, and you kind of like iron out all the bugs and then you buy the expensive stencil one time and you've got it all fixed got it all fixed yep yeah nope that's all i have for that that stencil printer i'm looking forward to actually learning it though they're so. fun uh the, the 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 machines that operate them are surprisingly complex even though they just kind of like I don't know, wipe a squeegee across a, a, yeah, a stencil, you know? Exactly. Because they, they have um, a lot of optical stuff yeah, the, going the on. Yeah, the big thing the with stenciling that um, you really have to take uh, care of, I guess, is one is your pace life. It's your shelf life of the pace, because if it's in there too long, it gets kind of uh, crunchy is a good way to put it. Um, <laughs> crunchy, yeah. It's It turns, instead of being like a smooth paste, it gets... Um, yeah, chunky and and it doesn't want to smooth out anymore. And then the second thing is your stencil um, can get dirty, and uh, that's especially if you start running a lot of, of the same panels over and over and over again and haven't cleaned your stencil in a while. Is the the apertures will start to pick up some of that crunchiness, and then and some of that because basically because you know the paste is just flux with a binder in it and then a bunch of solder balls, right? And so eventually that paste starts to dry out and it starts attaching and clinging to inside the apertures and then you don't get good releases. And so you can either, oh, we're going to clean the stencil after X panels and then we guarantee it. But a lot of times you still have a good life out of your, your stencil basically still then. And so what you can do is you can do optical inspection on some of the smaller features on your boards. And so then you can basically check that and say, okay, now that's starting to degrade. Let's go clean the stencil now. And so then you get rid of environmental factors. And, you know, if you're changing paste uh, brand that has one has a longer shelf life, one doesn't, stuff like that. So. You, you know, I actually have a, an interesting story about paste life because I ran into it uh, Monday of last week. Um, I, so I got a whole bin of units that were you know failing uh, and they you know the testing department was like i tested this and i got zero percent yield everything's not working and they sent it to me and i i looked at it under microscope and i see i see some interesting features on on our boards uh, that normally i don't see it's like when you go to the doctor and you get your test results back and they say interesting anything immediately <laughs> yeah. bad <laughs> yeah um so so it, 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 it looked like okay. So if you look in the IPC six ten dash whatever revision they're on now, there is a page that describes a type of solder that's called disturbed solder. 
and <laughs> it looks wavy and it looks wavy and kind of cracked and i was noticing that across a handful of boards and and usually with disturbed solder you have to have physical movement you have to disturb the uh the solder joint while it's cooling and you get a weird like fractures and and uh as as things kind of solidify so uh the thing that was interesting though is i zoomed in a little bit further and i noticed that the solder joints yeah <laughs> I noticed that the solder joints were actually basically perfect, but there was a layer of flux on top that as the flux cooled, the flux cracked and it didn't completely boil off. And it was old paste and the flux didn't burn properly as it went through our reflow oven. So we pitched that, that paste, did a whole brand new uh, bottle of paste and the very next run was perfect and actually what was funny was the the reason why those units were failing is because we had a small bug in firmware and it had nothing to do with soldering but like people <laughs> were like the solder's bad on this like <laughs> no no it, it's it's interesting is we're actually we are probably going to start running into that now at the fab because our paste jet uses a different kind of paste than our screen printer does just from the nature of how the paste jet works it needs a specific blend of flux and and unicorn blood in the machine right 11 herbs and, and spices but that, that unicorn blood that unicorn blood makes a crust over the solder joints and whereas when you do a normal paste usually you don't have any of that it usually boils off at the end of your reflow yeah um, but on our paste jet machine we that how it's it just sticks around and there's nothing you can do brand new paste does it and it's just that's just Part of okay life. so so the, the yeah the, but the thing is like if you if you have the if you have the oven set just right like if all of the stars align and everything solders well that that most of that burns off and it what remains is clear if, yes. if you get stuff that looks like earwax and it's cracked all over the place Correct. just pitch the paste and just it's it's or a, it's a 60 dollar tub of paste like don't worry or, about it no or you're saying check your profile but no it is that that paste leaves a clear shell eggshell over the paste over the over the solder and there's nothing you can do about it that's just the nature of whatever unicorn that's that's when you reflow unicorn blood that's what it turns into <laughs> and that's why you buy super sharp multimeter probes so you can crack through that to, to measure things yes <laughs> We should put a link to those multimeter probes we keep recommending. People. Yeah, for like seven bucks. I bought yeah. a pair the other week. They're great. Yeah, they work great. Yeah. Until they roll over, but they're sharp. There's nothing you can do about it. Or until you slip and and uh, you short some stuff and some smoke comes out, because that totally didn't happen to me the other week. <laughs> I was actually about to say stab your thumb, which I've done before. <laughs> yeah, but they're great. I like them. Yeah, they're very good. That's 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 the best thing is because um, we had um, oh bald engineer James Lewis on, and we were talking about lab equipment. I think it was the last episode we had him on, and we were talking about multimeters. And I'm like twenty dollar multimeter and ten dollar probes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, our buddy texted Barker and I the other day and was like, "I want to buy a multimeter," and and he's all like, "I'm I'm ready to spend a hundred and fifty bucks." We're like, nah. "I'm like on a fluke." And I'm yeah, like, like, nah, buy that $20 one and get a 
ten dollars of probes and you'd be just fine well and that's not to say that like i wouldn't want to fluke myself in my lab but i just know when i need accuracy and when i don't and 90 percent of the time i don't need accuracy 90 percent of the time i just need a continuity test well no it's just it's just what he needs i would say this is if your life depended on a multimeter you get a initial standard multimeter Mm -hmm. that's going to stand up in court if it and it's an, and have it NIST calibrated. Yes, it's it's is is if a lawyer is going to go after you, you want a a NIST calibrated <laughs> multimeter. Yeah, but if you're like this guy and working on model trains, a twenty dollar multimeter is fine. Now, how big of a train has to get before it's not a model train, it's a regular train? <laughs> we we don't need to go down that path. We've already been on like forty tangents this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so before we jump into your next topic, we're going to yeah. keep this tangent train rolling. Let's go. Is um, So we talked a little bit about this in our Slack channel, and I want to gauge people's reactions if we started to do a Twitch live stream of the podcast. So it would be like Steve and I are talking, and I think we're going to try to do it where it's just Steve and I are just talking to each other, and then at the end we look at the chats and see what the questions are <laughs> and we see everyone being like you're wrong about everything <laughs> yeah we get it's like being fact checked during during the whole thing but i i i want to try that way mainly from i think if it was steven and i and chat at the same time it might be a little weird yeah we might be. try a podcast doing that just to see how it goes but given the fact that this is an audio podcast people not being able to see the chat would be weird. Whereas if we did like a chat Q&A at the end where like people could submit questions and we could read the question and then answer it, that might work better. Um, so let us know in Slack or on Twitter or an email podcast at macpad.com if uh, what you think. So I guess we'll have like a, I mean, we already do have a particular recording time, but we'll just release that and people can get on live and yeah. Ask questions yeah. if if we have anyone who we if we have it. anyone that wants to you know <laughs> pop on at six o'clock Central Time on a Tuesday. <laughs> hey, we've we've actually done a handful of live things, and there have been people, and it's been fun. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the uh, the coding thing that we did together was uh, we wrote some firmware together to drive um, some of the seven segment displays on my uh, U tracer, and we had uh, we had a handful. Oh, of We people wrote a debounce function. Is what we did. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, because I had I had a lot of the skeleton behind there, but uh, yeah, the it was the debounce function and the interrupt code that that went in yeah. there. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, the micro trace. That was the project I was thinking about. Someone was asking on Slack what uh, about a wooden project enclosure. Yeah, that was Derek. And, um, yeah, and I'm like, oh, Stephen totally used that same enclosure. That exact same enclosure. Was, yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember what it was. My, micro tracer was the project. Yeah. So, So Stephen, what have you been up to? uh, The last week I was talking about, well, the last couple of weeks I've been talking about high voltage, low current measurements. And uh, I've, I finally just said like, okay, I'm, I'm figuring this out. Everyone's been super like helpful on the Slack channel in terms of giving me suggestions on things. And um, I kind of deviated a little bit and, and changed my mind on some things because I added a little bit of a stipulation to, to the, kind of underlying design criteria. And one of that was, I didn't want to handle this like a traditional ammeter. 
In other words, I didn't want to break a line and stick something in there. I wanted something where I could plug in a connector and get the data and then unplug the connector, and I didn't have to break a line or do anything other than plug in a connector. So that kind of shoehorns me into... Well, let me actually add one more little caveat to that. I didn't want to add any components to the board that I'm measuring either. So ah, okay, yeah. I just want something that can sniff the board and give me data, and then like it's like it was never there. Poof, mm, popcorn. <laughs> so, uh, so that, that okay. So what that basically does is it means that I am stuck with measuring low voltages where low voltages exist, and then the old school method of read a voltage on one side of a resistor, read a voltage on the other side of the resistor, and you know the resistance you can calculate to whatever the tolerance is, the current that flows through it. So that's what I'm basically going with. Now, I, I discussed, uh, actually I'm holding these up, Parker's seen this, but uh, these high voltage uh, resistive dividers that are like, they can handle something like 1200 volts and uh, they have pretty high precision laser trimmed resistors inside. The uh, One of these devices that I'm going with is the Cadoc 1776-C681. Oh, yes, the freedom resistor. <laughs> right. I think you made that joke. I made the same joke. Previously. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. But the, so it's a point, it's 0.1% resistor. It's 0.1% global tolerance, but all the resistors inside have a 0.05% uh, percent uh, resistor to, to resistor oh, yeah. tolerance. Yeah, resistor matching ratio, 0.05%. Right, so it's pretty dang good. Basically, it's it's a it's a voltage divider. That's all it is. Really it low uh, PPM drift, too. It's meant for doing exactly what I'm doing effectively. Take yeah. a high voltage, make it a low voltage, generally accurately. So this guy is um, 10 megaohm total it's five resistors so it's got a nine meg 900k 90k 9k and a 1k to equal up to 10 meg uh total and so um with four different taps you can get one tenth voltage one one hundredth one one thousandth and one ten thousandth so i'm gonna pull off of the one one hundredth tap such that a zero to 500 volt input to the resistor divider gives me a zero to five volt output. And then I can interface that to an ADC and start getting some values. And I can put two of these, one on either side of a screen resistor in my amps, read the voltage across it, and then I know what value that resistor is. So I can type it into whatever program I'm going to develop and just say, what's the current through it. And uh, that'll, I don't see any reasons why that won't work out other than the fact that these resistors are like 16 bucks a piece, which <laughs> kind of sucks, but you know, I, I'm not making a ton of these. Um, well, what's your, um, since it's low current, are you making sure that on your, on your resistor divider is going to be high enough impedance to make sure you're not going to be getting any parasitic draw? Yeah. So, uh, the, the, most of the time the resistors that I'm, going to be reading across are 1k maximum uh and so okay. if we're talking about a resistor divider of 1k and 10 mega ohm i don't think i'm going to be getting any kind of massive gain errors out of that the interesting thing is there i did run into a different gain error and that's kind of what i wanted to talk about with this because i ended up 
doing a bunch of research on what EDC I wanted to grab for this. And originally I wanted to get a, a 16-bit A to D because that gave plenty of resolution. And um, I, the, the problem was I just... If you've ever searched for ADCs, you can spend a week and a half searching for, like, the perfect one. And and the problem is, like, I just kept searching. It's just like, everyone, like, I didn't get that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get when you find the component that you love, you know? And uh, eventually, I stumbled onto, just randomly, a uh, another part that was the MCP3551-E slash sn which is not a 16-bit add i think this is actually a microchip part let me look it up real quick it's mcp so yeah 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 it's a it's a microchip part it's a 22-bit add that has plenty i wonder good... hold on i wonder if mcp actually stands for a microchip part i wouldn't be surprised like so many of their parts start with mcp um but regardless th this thing is a, a 22-bit a to d which is way more accuracy than I need. It's not particularly fast, but it, all the rest of the characteristics about it, like its gain error and things like that, I'm not. I'm not worried about that. It's plenty good enough. Yeah, it's. It's also like you're measuring the current. How quickly is the current going to be changing that you want to measure? Everything here is DC, so this thing can read 13 and a half times a second, which is ridiculously slow. But yeah, even if it read. Two times a second, I'd be fine. You know, it doesn't. I don't need a an update refresh speed that's through the roof. I'll probably try to get it around ten times a second, and that's way more than enough. Um, also, I'm going to be measuring like twelve of these, uh, so I do, like all at. I don't need a ton of measuring speed. Um, so they're, they're they're SPI chips, so super easy to talk to. The one thing, though, that made me raise an eyebrow is they have 2.4 mega-ohm input impedance, which generally that's moderately high. It's not, like, super high, but it got me thinking, if I plug this thing into a tap on a 10 mega-ohm voltage divider, I'm going to be screwing with my ratios like crazy because 2.4 meg is plenty enough to start messing with... Uh, the ratios on that. So I actually uh, decided to calculate it out and see like how bad would it be if I just raw plugged this thing into one of these um, voltage divider uh, resistors I got. And uh, I ended up coming up with, if it's ta uh, connected to the 1 100th tap on this resistor, I get a gain, well, the ideal gain is 0 0.01, but the gain of the, the everything becomes 0 0.0096. So it is reducing it, as you would expect, because now you're putting impedance in parallel with uh, some other resistors in the voltage mm -hmm. divider. Effectively, the bottom resistor in the voltage divider, you now have um, something in parallel. So... The, in fact, the, the resistance of the bottom leg of the voltage divider would be 100K. So I've got 100K in parallel with 2.4 meg. You do parallel resistance, and you get not 100K. You get something less, right? Yes. And and so I want it to be a gain of 0 0.01, but I'm getting, I would get 0 0.0096. And at full scale, if I put full 5 volts into that, I would get 4.8 volts. So that's enough of an error that I'm not okay with that. 
that would um, also that 2.4 mega ohm is not a controlled spec on the uh, device. So if I had 10 of these in there, they could be all over the place, right? That's their Do they even give you value. a tolerance for that? I don't think so. It's just hmm. that I think that's their typical value. I don't remember what it said, but I wouldn't ever trust that to be like guaranteed. Yeah, yeah. You can't hard code in. 0.0096. Right, because I thought about that. I was like, well, if it's guaranteed, but I, I know it's not guaranteed. And mm -hmm. so, uh, yeah, I, you would just be building in error by doing this. So, I came up with a solution, which is not particularly flashy, but I decided to add a buffer in there. But the whole reason why I'm talking about this is because I found a pretty cool little buffer that I wanted to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and You know, it's not often that you hear that. Got a cool little buffer. Well, with this thing, I think this is this thing is pretty legit, and uh, it's not cheap. It's like six bucks in singles, and it doesn't. It's get... more expensive than your ADC. Yeah, the, these ADCs are a little less than four dollars in singles. Yeah, and, and the buffer is more. <laughs> yeah, the buffer the buffer is more, but this is a quad buffer, so I only need uh, okay. two of them. Two of them, yeah. Uh, or no, I actually need three. You need three. Yeah, yeah, because um, you're going to ten, right? Uh, I think I have, I have. 10 to 12 things to measure. I haven't decided how much more. And I might add some expansion into it, so I don't know. Go to 16. I just add four of them in there? Yeah. 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 Why not go to 20? Come on. Feature creep it. That, well, I, I think I think that's... By the way, that's our roles in this podcast is to like poke each other to feature creep more, right? Well, I, I don't know if you remember that one project. I had the Octoprober, mm -hmm. which was an eight-channel. So you can have a dual Octoprober. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. The Octoprober was cool. You should finish that one day. I have no idea where it's at. It was super cool. And the, the case looked cool, too. Those that don't know, that was an eight-channel thermocouple reader for doing... Uh, basically measurements on 3D. Reading. <laughs> well, it's for like 3D printers. So like yeah. you could uh, tape them all down to your bed and get like a heat profile of your bed. That was kind of the idea. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I should do that project after the cat feeder. Okay. Octoprober. Which I was hoping not to mention on this episode. Actually, if if you finish the Octoprober, whatever, I will buy one for sure. Like that's super useful. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I will buy all parts in quantity of two now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure you don't want one of the things I'm making here. No. Like, it would not be useful to you in any way. Uh, so, so okay, so check this out. This this buffer chip that I found is the AD8244BRMZ. Uh, it's basically just a quad buffer, so it's like the most boring chip ever. Uh, you put something in, and the exact same thing comes out the outside, right? That's the whole point yep. of a buffer. And that's what you want to happen. Yes. Uh, so the cool thing it's is... Just, it it's, is just, it's just a piece of wire inside of the chip. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed unity gain. <laughs> yeah, 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 unity gain. <laughs> uh, so the typical offset voltage from this thing is only 100 microvolts. So it's pretty low offset. And then across temperature, I think you can get to like 600 microvolts or something like that. Uh, which is kind of nice because... That's so low, but with my 22-bit ADD, I should be able to read that. Um, but I can just have a uh, like an offset calibration in my device. Basically, without having any current flow through it, I can just go to my software that I that I write for this and just say, like, zero out and whatever. Yeah. So I can zero that out easily. It's just nice that the typical offset voltage is already really, really low, that it's not mm -hmm. going to throw things off. 
cool thing is it has a gain error of 0.03% on plus minus 15 volt rails, which I'm going to run it somewhere close to that. Um, here's the thing that's really nice about it. It has a 10 tera ohm and four picofarad input resistance and input capacitance. So Jeez. It, it and its input bias current is two pico amps. So um, it basically is invisible to yeah, it's my like, voltage dividers. Yeah, it's like the like if you had a trace, your trace is going to have more parasitic stuff on it than this device does so so you know what's funny there's a whole section of the data sheet that talks about that specifically in fact this this they they put a very specific pinout of the of the uh buffers inside the chip such that you can uh, make guard traces around them. oh yeah i'm looking at that right now yeah you can make guard traces because fr4 if you lay it out incorrectly will have higher uh leakage current than the device itself so the in order to get like a perfect buffer you have to put a lot of effort into your layout to make things just right but okay so so check this out i, I, I recalculated everything if i use this buffer in there Instead of the 2.4 mega ohm input impedance of the A to D, if I replace that with 10 tera ohms, which is 10 times 10 to the 12th power uh, resistance, what does my gain go to? So my, uh, previously my gain error was 0.0096, or not the error, that was the gain. Now, if I if if everything is ideal, and I, the gain would now be 0.00. Nine 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 zero one, so that's eight nines behind there. So effectively, I just wrote in the show notes close enough. You know, like yeah. That's that's a that's that that's a point zero zero one. <laughs> <laughs> right. Actually, you know what's funny? I'll probably get more error from the gain of the unity in the buffer than I will now from loading down my voltage divider. Yeah, you're actually probably right. Uh, but I'm willing to accept that. That's that's fine. And that's also well, yeah, because you that, already you already accepted that was you were going to get that um, for sure. I was I was going to get that. So uh, the, the I love I love this challenge because just to do something simple like reading current, you have to really dig into a lot of other things because it just keeps adding problems. Uh, yeah. Every solution that myself or everyone in the in the slack channel comes up with there's been some really creative stuff but like every single time it's like ah but that adds so much work and so much yeah. extra crap well like the best ones were like just using those those uh allegro chips right but the best the, the only problem with those is like your resolution was like three or four bits yeah it was it, it wouldn't have been good so uh like i talked about on the last podcast i'd have to add a bunch of gain that's not yeah. ideal uh, and then at the same time, I put another stipulation that makes those Lego chips not really work too well. I don't want to break the trace. I don't want to insert this thing into the circuit. I want to be able to just sniff things, which basically means I got to detect voltage. Hmm. So, uh, so yeah, there we go. Um, got that all taken care of. I, I ended up uh, this last weekend throwing together a whole schematic with, um, well, it's, it's almost done now. But I'm going to just go cheapo, easy Arduino route and throw a 328P and an uh, FT230X on a board and just have it talk to all of these uh, all of these A to Ds on there. And, and all um, at once. 
And then uh, I'm, my, my plan right now is to actually write a processing sketch on my computer that can talk down to the A to D. And then I can just, I basically make a super custom data acquisition system for guitar amps. Cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, hopefully I've, I've got some stuff on order for my like super unique connector system. So I, everything's on order. Steven has not told me what this thing is yet. I want to, I, I want to show it off once I have it and once I have it working. So, so you, you have to have a logo for this board oh, and it's like, damn, I didn't even like think a, about it. It's like an eight armed octopus playing guitars. <laughs> like I like guitar, that. Or an eight guitar neck guitar, an eight neck guitar. Oh, you know what? You just kind of screwed everything up now because like now I need a nice logo and I just realized like I need to put it in another one of those wooden boxes that Derek was going to use. Like I need to yes. buy another one of those. Yeah, you got to do that now. Yeah. See, you, what, what did you say earlier? Your your job is to feature creep <laughs> my projects and that's my job for you. <laughs> and so before we wrap up this this episode, uh, let us know in sh in the uh, in Slack or on Twitter or whatever if you want us to start doing Twitch live streams. Let us know. And uh, yeah, I think we're wrapping this thing up. Cool. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later. <laughs>